Hey, we're doing Katie Taylor from Catholic Link. And in this episode, we are honored to get to sit down and talk about the cross of infertility, of secondary infertility. And so we pray that this conversation is a blessing for those that are struggling, for those that are journeying with couples who are working through the journey of infertility. May And also we dive into reproductive technologies, what's good, what's bad, why is it bad, why is it good, and so much more. So we pray that this conversation is a blessing for your heart and for your healing. Marie, welcome to the Catholic Link Show. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here with you today. Guys, we are really excited about this interview um, on a on a really special and a, can be a really difficult topic uh, of infertility. But Dr. Marie Meany is the author of "When Expecting Doesn't Happen: Turning Infertility into a Journey of Hope." Uh, she's a professor in the International Theological Institute in Austria uh, and has a lot of uh, firsthand experience and has walked with a lot of women through this journey. So. Marie, could you maybe give our listeners just a little background into um, yeah, your life and, and this topic and, and how did you end up writing a book about all of this? Sure. So um, we got married in 2000. Very excited to start a large family and didn't expect there to be any problems. Um, you know, bad things always happen to other people. And, um, and then we're surprised when children weren't coming along immediately. And, you know, my husband is an optimist, so he's always like, oh, don't worry, don't worry. And uh, I'm more the melancholic, so I started to get worried fairly soon. But anyway, um, <laughs> you know, and we were trying to figure things out, and it just wasn't happening. Some doctors gave us hope. Others were more negative. And, um, and I just found it very, very hard to live the everyday, you know, we're, we're, we're committed Catholics and we love God and we embrace the Catholic Church's teaching on, um, on fertility and um, reproductive technologies. That was not an issue, but I was just like, how do you deal with this every day? And I, I didn't find anything. So finally in 2006, I, I sat down and I wrote something. So we were still three years away from having a child. So our, our, our one and only child came after, one and only living child came only after nine years of marriage. And um, and so we didn't know whether we'd have children. So I really wrote in the darkness, but I felt, you know, there are so many things that I meant to do right and I got wrong in the journey. And I wish somebody else had told me that. So I'm going to tell that to other people. And I will write this not just for myself and people suffering from infertility, but for their friends and families, because they often don't know what to say and end up saying the wrong thing. So it was you know, a short little essay. It was first went out as C CD and then as a little booklet and now, years later, I've came, come back to it just to make it much more complete. And um, and now, of course, with the happiness of, of having a child, uh, little Therese, uh, secondary infertility afterwards, and, and one, one miscarriage, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, well, I can say as family and friends who are blessed to journey with couples who are struggling with infertility, who are struggling with secondary infertility, who have these wounds that even though they've been blessed with children now, there's this reality that these wounds cut deep and they're lasting and they're hard, hard to heal. Uh, and so thank you for helping because I feel inadequate in my ability to express uh, appropriately the compassion, the, the love I want to give. And so um, the first thing 
is what would be your biggest piece of advice for couples just working through the journey of infertility? Yeah. So um, I'd say, um, first of all, it is normal to feel crushed by this. It is normal to suffer so much. One, one tends to think, well, I, I must be doing something wrong. You know, I'm, I'm a believing Catholic and somehow shouldn't you have an impression, well, this should be easier. And what, what am I getting wrong? But no, this is, this, it has been compared to the loss of a child. So it's simply a child you've never seen, you've never held in your arms. And, and so it is a tremendous heartbreak. Now, not every experience it, it experiences it that dramatically, but then you do. And, you know, you just walk through every day thinking, you know, how am I going to manage this for another day? And for the woman, it's particularly hard because every month her hopes go up and then to be shattered again at a moment when hormonally she's particularly vulnerable. And, um, and so it's, 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 it's really, really tough. So allow yourself to mourn. Allow yourself to cry. You know, I thought I need to be heroic and courageous. And yes, yes, it's right to be heroic. But uh, trying not to mourn means you're not actually accepting the cross. You think you can bypass it. You can just, um, you know, get a smile on your face and, and be done with it. And, and it doesn't work that way. So give yourself mm -hmm. space to mourn um, and make that clear to others. And, and try to grow together with your spouse because growing together is not automatic. Pain can also make you drift apart, especially since the sexes have such different ways of dealing with with things, and there can be a lot of miscommunication. So, um, and then um, I'd say get help if it gets too hard. You know, don't go to a good priest. Go to a Catholic therapist. Mm -hmm. Don't let this turn into depression. And and I'll also say, you know, seek medical aid. Um, sometimes we tend to think, well, you know, God will take care of it. Well, God has given us good doctors. Um, yeah. you know, them. He's invented, you know, he's given us medicine. And um, when we have an appendicitis, we don't say, well, God will take care of it. No, that would be a sin against our body. And we would be putting ourselves at risk. Infertility mm -hmm. is not illness. And you should try to get to the bottom of it as far as that's possible. And it uh, mm -hmm. doesn't mean that you need to do it all the time. You can take breaks in between, or you might reach the point where you say, I'm, I'm done. You know, I've tried a lot and I can't do this any further. And that's fine too. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I basically say, walk every day with God in this, mm -hmm. knowing that this is hard and knowing that you don't have to accept now all the pain from the future years, because the terrible thing is that you see in front of you these years of infertility. You're like, I'll never have children. I'll never have grandchildren. You know, how, how is my life now? And nothing you have is kind of fills that gap because you, you're in a vocation that's made to have children. I mean, this is normal that you feel that way. You're supposed yeah. to bring forth, you engender children to co-create with God. And it's deeply frustrating not to be able to do that. So um, what I found very helpful was to say, I cannot accept it for the next year. I can't accept it for the next day, but I can accept it for now, just for the second. For this second, mm -hmm. I can accept this infertility. And, you know, I don't know what's going to be in a day. I don't know what's going to be in a year. I might be pregnant by that, by that point. The problem might have been resolved, or I might be in a different spot and maybe able to deal with this completely differently. Ah, mm -hmm. oh, yes. Living present, the present moment, because we don't have the grace yet for for whatever is to come. And I think that that was also an eye-opening of like 
there are levels of morning it. It's like morning it because we're in the thick of like little kids and all of our friends are having little kids and mm-hmm. there's like great cross and great burden there. But then, you know, as, as a grandmother and your friends are all becoming grandparents and that like also means that this healing journey is a journey and a process. And I think one of the biggest things is that you said is this reality that we're not crazy. And so when somebody is going through this mourning process, whatever we're mourning, but especially in infertility, you're not crazy and you're not alone and that there is a good to boundaries. And I really just appreciated you pulling that out in the book of like where you may need to say no to some events. You may need to protect your heart with certain people, but then be open with others. And this just reality of how do we live that out? Because we're such a culture of put a smile on. If I'm truly faithful, I'll be smiling and I will be like praising the Lord in this suffering. (laughs) And so I must be failing as a Christian. Um, And yet like to just have somebody. And so thank you for writing this book. Thank you for coming on and talking about this because I think every couple who's going through this feels crazy and alone. Um, and needs to know that they're not. Um, for those who are trying to journey with them, mm-hmm. any advice I, so that I'm not hurting more than I'm helping? Yeah, <laughs> it's really tough. I really, really can empathize with that too. Um, so I'd say the one thing is, you already mentioned the term earlier on, um, it's compassion. It's just mm. feeling along mourning along with the other person and mainly I'd say be quiet you know mm-hmm. the most I'd, I would suggest to say to a friend you know I'm here for you if you want to talk but don't feel that you need to bring it up you need to address it um, the person can come to you or may choose somebody else um, or this might just not be the right moment but if you say you know I'm here for you and if you want to talk I you know I'm, I'm a good listener um and then once the other person does open up is not to feel that you have to fix the problem because generally you can't, you know, mm-hmm. unfortunately you don't have the magic wand saying, I will, I will heal you infertility. And um, if you have some great doctors up your sleeve, you can't guarantee that these are going to do the trick. And, uh, and even what you say, you know, it, it will hopefully mm-hmm. make the burden a bit lighter, but it's, it's probably not going to heal the heart. So just, just to be aware of that and the fact that you are simply willing to listen and to empathize mm-hmm. is huge. And especially when this kind of thing lasts for years and years, because people get tired of it around it. It's like, you know, get impatient. It's like, shouldn't such and such have gotten over this by this point? You know, is this in the lack of virtue, whatever? You know, this is all judgment and is wrong. But I think we all tend to do that at some point. Um, and uh, and still be there and not judge. You know, what, what mm-hmm. do the friends of Job do? They're like, you must have done something wrong, you know, otherwise yeah. God would punish you that way, you know, and God does not think so at all. So yeah. we don't understand often why this is happening, but I'm there with mm-hmm. you as you're hanging on the cross. So I can be the mother of God and St. John standing under your cross. I can be your Simonist Serene helping you mm-hmm. carry that cross. And, mm-hmm. and that's absolutely tremendous. And it's, mm-hmm. um, it's really something that we can, that we need to learn more and more as our hearts become more and more tender and that we learn through prayer more and more to get that patience and and to abstain from judging others. Um, but uh, when I came across people who were really compassionate, 
it made a huge difference. And I'm just thinking of the time when I had a miscarriage after mm. one and a half years after Teresa's birth. And I was, we were in Italy at the time and I went to a hospital and it was just awful. <laughs> and you know, they were all very professional. And of course they, they, they were good at what they were doing. And there were two people there who were wonderful. And I'm sure mm. they were practicing Christians the way they were behaving. And it, was, it, it made a huge difference. The night afterwards, so you, you don't know how what an impact you can have just by being loving. And if you say the wrong thing, then you know if you notice it, then apologize. There's nothing more you can do. I mean, you can't read the mind of the other. You don't know yeah. the things that are there. Yeah. You know, both have to grow in that both the infertile couple and their friends. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think one thing that I enjoyed reading about the book was was just kind of this, you know, opening your awareness or maybe just a vocabulary to be able to use to talk about it. Because like Katie was saying, you know, we have walked with couples with um, infertility or um, miscarriage or, right? There, and there, there's a lot of these topics that, I mean, like I, I didn't get trained in school growing up how to, you know, sure. talk to a friend about this stuff. And I was just curious if you had any thoughts on, is that a, is that a cultural thing where, we just don't bring up or talk about this stuff. Um, and so we're not good at it. Or is this like, it's just a hard thing to talk about, no matter, you know, even if it is something that is um, kind of woven into your culture, is it because of, um, you know, abortion or, you know, some of you, like just the way that we are, are that we are grown up. So yeah, I was just curious at, um, okay. on your thoughts on the culture and mm -hmm. uh, just kind of, having or working through infertility. Yeah. So I, let me start with a positive point. My impression is that awareness has grown. So mm -hmm. between when I started and I felt I, I wasn't finding any help anywhere, uh, books coming out, people talking about it, self-help groups on Facebook. I mean, it's huge. And just awareness with priests too, of the tremendous pain uh, that, that these couples are going through. So that, that to me was just very, very comforting to see that. Um, mm -hmm. And why is it the case that so far, I mean, I think people didn't talk about these things in the past, you know, miscarriages in the family. I don't know whether my grandparents had miscarriages because you just didn't talk about it. Their, their children wouldn't have known, except if they're grown enough to notice it. So it was just the kind of thing you, you, you don't talk about it. And um, and I think you're right, Drew, too, in saying about the whole abortion issue. We, we live in this world where we think we can either get rid of children we, children we don't want or have children when we want, exactly when we want them. And, um, and so suddenly this not happening is very uncomfortable and is bringing a truth to light that children are gifts and they're not commodities. It's not just up to decide when we yeah. want them, when we don't want them. And, and I think therefore it's been kind of shut up similarly to the pain about abortion or the pain about miscarriage. But as I just said, I, I think there's also, there is a greater awareness of, of people now, among people now. Yeah, I think that that's such a good point of our like instant gratification. Like we expect everything to go our way. And if it doesn't go our way, then we'll like quickly change that. And we have like a solution for all of these problems mm -hmm. um, and how quick we are to – and there's there's good science and good medicine. And then there's not so good science and not so good medicine, uh, which maybe we'll dive into next. But just mm -hmm. this reality that I'm in control and – I have such a finite view and limited 
capacity to understand like all the moving pieces and why God does this. There, there sometimes isn't a why. I'm like, what? Like that I'm going to comprehend at this phase. There is a why for me. <laughs> um, but this, I, and so I don't know if maybe just your insight first on reproductive technologies and where we are, because this culture of IVF is just We've grown in awareness and we've also grown in this, like everyone does IVF now. So that's the answer. Um, I don't know what you, what you wish people knew about uh, Catholic reproductive technology, knowledge, what they knew about IVF. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, very good question, Katie. Um, I'd say, first of all, so many people don't know about the Catholic teachings on reproductive technologies, and when they know about them, they don't know much. And there's this kind of prejudice just being that oh, the Catholic Church just wants to make life difficult. In reality, what I'd love for people to take away from this show is that the Catholic Church's teaching on this it is purely based on love. It is based on love for the couple and for the children involved. So... And it's precisely because children are of such tremendous values because the couple, it's love for each other, the spouses for each other is so tremendous that we don't, we want to speak that love the right way and not bringing something that is really destructive. Because just think about it, if we take, try to take a little distance, we're so used to IVF that it doesn't shock us anymore. When we think yeah. about it, okay, look at the difference between a child that is conceived in the embrace of its parents and a child that is conceived in a lab. By technicians and adults now who were conceived through IVF speak about it, how terrible it feels to them that they were brought up in this cold clinical environment. And not only that, I mean, they're at the mercy of these technicians. They decide, well, this this one looks good. This one doesn't look so good. Let's discard it. Well, this one, let's freeze it. Uh, you know, they're, they're not safe. And they're safe in their mother's womb. So you, you can't compare the two things. They are just absolutely different and contradictory um, because however much um, couples who want a child and who get a child through IVF and you know love their child to bits I have no doubt about it, and are a fantastic parent um, the problem is that in the act of conception a very grave injustice was done against mm. the child it was um, used it was used like an object again created in a lab the child becomes a commodity and again you know, witnesses, people who've gone through this and who are now adults and, and say, look, my parents didn't accept their suffering and now they've passed it on to me, but it's much worse because infertility is a tragedy, obviously. Yeah. It's a crushing cross. But what I'm doing with my child is I'm inflicting a wound on that child that is not just an illness, a natural disaster, something that just happens randomly, but it, it is an act and an act that sins against this child's dignity. So mm. it's the wound of a sin compared to the wound of an illness. And you can't compare the two. The one is much worse because it's a sin against love. I'm wounding the ch child in its deepest core at a very, very fragile moment of conception, which is so important. Mm. And today we are so rightly concerned about everything that the child experiences in the womb. We sing to our children. <laughs> we talk to them. We want to avoid all trauma and shock. But somehow... The beginning, the conception would not be important. And um, 
And we know of children there like uh, uh, neonatal psychologists uh, who speak about the difference between children who born conceived naturally and those who are conceived in a lab. And there's, uh, there's one man who was telling the story of this little girl who was like two years old or something and she was distressed and um, she had a dream and or she must have been three, she was already able to talk, um, that she had seven siblings who were in a dark cave and were very cold and were screaming. Now, nobody had ever mentioned in front of her that she was, I mean, conceived in IDF and that she had siblings in, in a cave. So, you know, I don't know how that would work and how the child mm -hmm. perceived this, but it certainly, this child could, and we don't know how much the others are. And no matter what they can experience or not, we should not be inflicting this kind of a wound on our children. And, and in that way, I'd say to infertile couples, it is something tremendous that you can actually already act as a parent, even if you never have children. What do parents do? They want the best, the best for their children, okay? They want the good of the child, even if it means that I suffer. Well, I might have to continue carrying this terrible cross of infertility in order that I don't inflict on my child the wound of IVF. Now, once the child is conceived, don't get me wrong, you know, it's, it's an infinite value and should be loved and, and cared for and everything. Um, but it's precisely because the child is of such, such infinite value that we do not want mm. to commit this grave sin against them. Oh, yes. And it is so hard, I think, going back to Drew's conversation, because so many friends now have gone through and done IVF or mm. are the result of a successful IVF. And as a culture, we don't want to speak about this. And I think we've done so much work in how do we parent for adoption? How do we work through those wounds? But we aren't willing to admit that there were wounds conceived through IVF or through donors or through surrogate mothers or through like there are wounds and there are some weird ramifications that just mm -hmm. exist as a result. And so just reading your book on the statistics of like being afraid of falling in love with somebody who's related to me when I'm a donor child, like mm -hmm. some of the psychological things, but because we don't want to talk about this because it, it is uncomfortable and there is a certain amount of, we don't want people to feel bad. It, it becomes hard to say like, no, like there's some psychological results to the choice that you made when you chose to conceive in a lab. And now we have to work through our parenting in that. And to give resources to it. I think also shocking in your book was, and I wish that I had the numbers in front of me, but the reality that any other medical experiment that had this many deaths caused by it would have been tossed out. Like morally, we would have said, if we killed this many people in the experimental process or in the saving process, that we would have said no. And I just, I think morally we've gone like, oh, well, under five days, like they don't really count, you know, and this like reality that no, like we are killing lives in order to get a life. Well, where does, Ooh, Ooh. And having had friends that are like, I had twins and now I have six more frozen and they're deemed medical trash or I am like, what do I do at this point? And I look at my two twins and I know that those are babies and I don't know how I'm going to reconcile that. And this like wound that they now have to work through one way or another, I just ought to carry that. And so to acknowledge like this comes with wounds, even if it feels like it's solving. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. what's causing us pain. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love for you to dive into alternatives mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because I am still shocked that people don't know that <laughs> IVF is actually not the most like highest success rate of options out there for them. Yes, absolutely. That that's one of the big lies, isn't it? That are told. Uh, you have an impression. Well, you go through the procedure and you will have a child in arms, and ultimately you have about one third of a chance, like thirty something percent, of having one after mm-hmm. after a number of cycles. And it's you know couples who've been through this say themselves how grueling it is. I mean, just the hormones mm-hmm. that the woman has to take and. And for the way the sperm is taken, I mean, for the husbands too, it's, it's all, it's, it's just unspeakable. It's just awful. So anyway, and of course there are alternatives and one very beautiful one is, um, was developed by this Dr. Hilgers in Omaha, Nebraska, the tremendous success rate, uh, much higher with his technology than women who go through IVF. So, um, for example, he's like got 56.7% of women suffering from endometriosis achieve pregnancy, you know, in contrast to whatever, 21% with IVF. Um, and he, he, he's sort of a two-tier system. The one is a very developed uh, fertility care system where couples know really exactly even in greater detail and precision than with billings when they are fertile. And that often resolves, kind of resolve the issue. And within a few months, um, you know, 20 to 40 percent of couples uh, conceive within the first six months of using that. And then uh, Dr. Hilders realized that often um, women suffer without knowing it from endometriosis, and even a little bit of endometriosis can already affect their health and fertility. And then he, mm-hmm. he's developed um, some surgery, a uh, very advanced surgery um, that takes care of the problem. And so many couples in the end are in the happy situation now that they're healed of their condition and can have children because IVF, of course, it doesn't heal you. It bypasses you in order to produce a child for you. But what you really want is medicine to heal the couple so that they can have their children naturally. Um, and that is real healing. IVF is not healing. IVF is just technology. Yeah, I. that's such a good point. As we are in a Band-Aid culture with medicine, I think that it's just like, Oh, let's let's cover up that issue rather than like dig deep into how do we achieve true healing. And I just the gift of NAPRO, the gift of the Creighton method, the gift of being able to better understand our bodies um, is such an important aspect. But for many, this may not be the happy ending. Um, and there may be this reality that that this journey doesn't result ever in a baby and in a culture that strives so much for a why or maybe more babies, even if it's secondary infertility, which I think we're even worse at talking about because you already got a kid or two. And so what's your problem? Um, like you're living the ideal. Um, and so we like very quickly shun that morning, but this reality that it may not result in more children um, or any children. And so a culture that wants the why. What do we say? Um, What would you help uh, just kind of embrace uh, this cross? Yeah. It's very hard, and it's a journey. You know, it's not something that we manage to do from one day to the next. Um, So for the why, you know, other than the fall that messed everything up, (laughs) um, we see Job in the Old Testament crying to God because he's really suffering. It's like, why, why is this happening? And God doesn't really answer him. He says, basically, you know, I made the heavens and you can't understand this. 
But he does give an answer in the New Testament, and, and Christ himself is the answer. And what does Christ do? He he doesn't take out his magic wand and just take away all of our suffering, which would just have been wonderful. But he has something much, much greater in, in, in hand and in mind. And um, and I think um, the, the John Paul II also wrote a beautiful, beautiful letter on suffering. And um, he says, you know, Christ becomes the answer, but it's not a theoretical answer. Mm-hmm. And it's an answer that you get in your heart. So if you think that you can sort of get in two sentences an answer, why am I going to this? That's not going to happen. But you get an answer on a different level. And you're suffering this cross becomes your vocation. Now, this is the one thing you do not want. Most of the time, the cross we have is the one which we really do not want, and we feel anything else would have been better than this one. And this is the one somehow we have to learn to accept. But, um, you know, it's in small steps. Uh, In my book, I mentioned the example of Chiara Corbella, this wonderful Italian woman who died at the age of 27 or 29 and um, who lost two children just after birth. And then when she had a third child who was healthy, then she died from cancer uh, within, within the year. And um, and what they did is they said just little steps. Every day we make little steps. And then they were surprised, you know, in their suffering. They thought it would be horrific. And, of course, it was horrific. But at the same time, they had this joy. So when they had held their children, their first two in their arms, and then the child died within a few hours, but they had baptized, and they loved that child. And they had they left, you know, both brokenhearted and filled with joy. And, mm-hmm. um, and as she was dying, her husband said, you know, is 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 Christ right? I mean, is this cross light? Because it didn't feel light. And she says, yeah, no, the cross is, is sweet. It is Deutsche. So I think mm-hmm. what we need to do is we need to open our deepest wounds to Christ. That's what Mother Teresa meant when she spoke about our inner Calcuttas. Mm-hmm. We always think oh, Calcuttas poor people on the street that we need to take care of. And yes, we should do that too. But what Christ is yearning for are these parts in us that are so painful. And so dark that we don't want to let anybody in, neither ourselves nor him. And he's the only one able to heal those. And when we do, then we are starting this journey of healing. And he will do it in his own time. So, you know, some will feel joy earlier, like Pierre Covell. Uh, others go too long, through longer nights. We just don't know what works out. But, you know, you do reach the point in this journey where you're not all the time banging your head against the wall and asking yourself why, because in your heart, you've received a response. Oh. Yeah, I think that's, and that's really beautiful. And, and that's tough. I, I'm not a super big guy on emotions, although I am working on that currently. But the idea that you can have this, this mourning and this joy and right, and they they can they can coexist together and then god is calling you on this this journey of healing mm-hmm. um Marie, do you have any, any other thoughts on the book before we jump into the lightning round or anything that you would want our listeners to uh to know well i just think um often at the end of life i think we see things differently or when we lose somebody close to us who dies like my father just died a very biblical age but still you know, he died and i was thinking about the tragedies in his life and how different they look now, because somehow they were part of this this web that God created with him, this beautiful fabric of which we only see the back at the moment and the, the bits and pieces. Mm. And then in the other life, we will see the beautiful picture that unfolds. And sometimes we get a glimpse of, glimpse of that and think when a person dies, that's one moment. And, you know, we will see these things very differently in eternity. And, mm. um, you know, Christ's wounds are glorious. These are wounds will also be glorious. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, 
we still have to live through the everyday and that's hard and there's no way around it that it is hard but you know keep up your hope because there is there, there is hope there is healing mm-hmm. and there is joy at the end of the journey ah oh, thank you thank you for saying that i'm going to ask one more question Good. because as drew alluded to he uh, is working on his emotional awareness for couples mm-hmm. um, <laughs> working through this um advice for how couples can support each other we touched a little bit on genders process this differently but also mm-hmm. how they can come together I, to maybe live out a mission that wasn't what they thought it would be. Yeah. Any, yeah. any ideas So there? how to help each other. I think on the one is to accept each other's brokenness because it's then in these moments of crisis that the other's wounds really come out. And we tend to go to the other because we want healing. We, we, we need the other. We need the other to heal us through his love. And, and then we become a little bit selfish. And to realize, no, we are both really, really raw in this. And we have to overstretch us. You know, we have to love until it hurts, as Mother Teresa said. And, and this is the moment. And, um, you know, accept the other with his brokenness and her brokenness and with different way of processing that, of communicating about it and trying to communicate in a way that the other finds helpful. So, you know, even though it means jumping over over one's, one's shadow and, you know, make yourself vulnerable to say something you know, I would need now. I would need you to listen to me. And I'm going to cry now, but I need you just to let me cry. And, you know, or the husband saying, you know, I can't talk about it just now. I'm like, okay, I, I accept that. You need not to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yes, then, you know, you have to find your path in life. So, so what do you do? Are there other things that you feel called to that you can do in the meantime or that become you know, the main mission of your life if, if no children come up. And that's just, you know, with the help of the Holy Spirit and going on the journey and finding the good place that, that that will work out. But, you know, we're all to be mothers and fathers. I think John Paul II said so well that we're all built, made to give ourselves. Religious life, you know, becoming priests, others through marriage, and others through being single. So in marriage, it's frustrating because you're meant to have children, it doesn't happen, but you're still supposed to be a father and a mother. And you can't spell that out for somebody else what that exactly is going to mean. You know, it may, might mean taking care of children, adopting, or that might be not your vocation at all. And your job or your vocation may not include children, but it always includes gifts of self. And by getting yourself, you're becoming a mother and you're becoming a father. Oh, what a truth. What a truth that regardless, you are a mother and you are a father mm. through that gift. I, and so we will dive now into the lightning round. I, first question, Marie, is your favorite saint? <laughs> Difficult. To Mother Teresa and Teresa of Lisieux. Oh, good. They feed off of each other. I yeah. mean, I feel like Mother <laughs> Teresa took so much from Therese that it, yes. What is your favorite devotion? Uh, I love the Novena of Sorinda by Delindo, the spiritual director of um, Padre Pio. And it just, it, it works miracles in one's heart. And I really, really would recommend it for couples undergoing this trial because yeah. you're just able to let go slowly and surely. Definitely a good resource for couples. Oh, mm. yes. And your favorite devotion? <laughs> oh, no, we just did that. Favorite book. Favorite book. Um, I love Jacques Philippe's Searching for and Maintaining Peace. Mm-hmm. Um, I also love Joseph Langford's Mother Teresa's Secret Fire, out of which I, I quoted um, just now mm-hmm. with her idea of the inner Calcutta's. So 
find that very, very helpful, how Christ is thirsting for us mm-hmm. and for our brokenness and all he wants mm-hmm. us to let him in and then we can be the the divine doctor that he is. Beautiful. All right. And lastly, where, where can people go to find out more about the book and what you have going on? So um, I'm, I'm an academic by training. So I've got an academic page, academia.edu. I have various books in, on Amazon um, with my another name in the middle, which I put in when I write academic things. I, I'm not very good at LinkedIn, though I have a, a website. So Perfect. We will put some of those links down below in the description for our viewers and listeners. And we just want to thank you for this gift to couples, to the church, uh, to friends, to family, and for all of our viewers. uh, Thank you. Until next time, and God bless. We're praying for you. 